I believe that becoming a better man means being more reliable and more supportive in relationships. Whether that be with friends, family or partners, human connection is important for all of us. So I've designed a test that will help you improve yourself and your relationships. There's a link to it in the show notes. I'll tell you more at the end of this episode. For now, enjoy listening. From everyone here on the Stories of Men podcast team, we hope both you and your family are having a fantastic festive season. This week, I wanted to share with you one of my favourite episodes from this year. Jed's story shows how much your family can influence you and change you for the better. Look after yourself and have a happy new year. Before we get into today's episode, I wanted to give you a heads up that we're talking about some pretty heavy themes, which you might find upsetting. Take care while you're listening. I just felt absolutely rocked at the fact that those people would be murdered and and it was just, it was scary because I'd never felt like that before. It, it was a, a tool, it was like somebody exposed a chink in the armour. Welcome to Stories of Men, Beneath the Surface. I'm Alex Melia. Join me as we discover what it means to be a man in the modern era. In this episode, we'll hear how a man copes when the horrors of war come back to haunt him decades later, and how he balances the brutality of army life with being a caring father. Jed used to be a vehicle mechanic in the British Army. Back in 1997, he was stationed in Bosnia. One afternoon, he jumps in a Land Rover with fellow soldier Brett, and they lead a convoy into rural Bosnia. It's a beautiful sunny day. About five hours into the trip, Something catches Jed's eye. We were driving through a village and I noticed that there was nobody about in the village. So I'd said to Brett as we were driving through this village, I said, where is everybody? Is it, is it like a bank? Is it a public holiday or something? Is there something going on? And Brett said, oh no, mate. He said, um, they're down the road, I'll show you. And I never thought anything else of it. And then about a mile down the road, we're driving past a field and, and Brett pointed and, and, and he said, oh, you know, you see in the middle of the field, there's a big crucifix. And I, I looked and yeah, there's this huge crucifix in the middle of the field. And Brett says, that's where the people of the village are. They're, they're buried there. They were taken out one night and massacred. There was no... Um, no compassion or nothing in, his, in, in the way he told me. It was just matter of fact. I'd never come across anything like that before, but I mean, so far as violence and, and what have you, I mean, that, that is normal. That, that's part of being in the army. What did surprise me as we drove past the, the field was just that there was only one crucifix. There, there didn't seem to be anything else. There was absolutely nothing in, in this field. It's possibly because there's no families left to go there and, and mark the passing, I don't know. I don't know whether everybody that lived in the village literally had nobody else, but there was just this one cross and, and that was it. Because you're a soldier, you've got to have this army. You, you, you've got to not show any sort of uh, vulnerability or weakness or anything like that. So I, I think I probably said something like, oh, it sucks to be them or something, and, and just dismissed it and didn't really ask any more questions or, or say anything about it. It just got put into a, 
there were a little filing cabinet in my head and, and never, um, never looked back on it at all. And then about 2009, I was, uh, well, we, the family, were sat one evening. We were sat watching the news on TV while we were having uh, our dinner. And uh, this, this, just this tiny little snippet towards the end, the news came on that um, investigators had found a, a hidden war grave in Bosnia with um, a couple of hundred people buried in it. And all of a sudden, this um, it just came at me like a boat from the blue. I, I just sat and started crying. I just, just wept. Um, and my wife sort of looked, and it's, is everything all right? And I just, uh, I couldn't explain. I said, I'm sorry, that's just really sort of um, upset me. And I had to leave the room and just, just sort of go outside and get a breath of fresh air and have a drink of water. And it just took me right back to that day when we were just driving past that, that field. I mean, I've, um, obviously since I left the army, I got married, I have kids, and life has become so much more precious to me than, than it was then as a young man, as a young soldier. I don't think you, you don't have a value on life because one of your tasks is to eradicate life if you have to. And as such, I don't think I'd ever really thought about that. Um, but, but years later, with a family around me, um, I just felt absolutely rocked at the fact that those people were, were being murdered. And, and it was just, it was scary because I'd never felt like that before. It, it was a at all, it's like somebody exposed a chink in the armour. Again, you've got this thing where you've got a lot of people just stuffed into the ground and covered and hidden as if they've been nothing, as if their lives didn't mean a thing. And then to the sort of, you know, obviously somebody's directed them and they've started digging and found, found these people. It's just so... Um, it's just horrible, just, just how people can be so nasty to each other. Back in 97, you were desensitised to it. You didn't really feel a thing. Mm -hmm. But now you are feeling it. Is it because you've got a family, you thought about how precious your kids' lives are because they're so young at that time, nine and seven, and you imagined what if it was your family that was... Yeah, totally, totally. And a good example of that is when my son was about five years old, he had to go into hospital to get grommets put in. And my wife and I took him into the hospital and then we got him settled onto the ward and the, the nurse came and said, right, one of you can come down to the theatre with him. Uh, so my wife said, well, you better go because you're, you're the big tough guy. You're not going to be a nervous wreck. Um, so I took him down to the theater. And to be honest, I did everything I could to distract him because I didn't want him getting worried. So we joked and we carried on and we had a right, we had a good time. And even like in the anesthetics room, we were laughing and giggling and all that. And then the anesthetist administered the injection and as soon as he fell unconscious, I just burst into tears. And the guy looked at me and said, is everything all right? And I, and I said, it, it's just hit me. 
that I am no longer responsible for his life. I've just given you the responsibility of, of looking after my child. And that's never happened before. I've never had to think that anybody else was responsible for him other than me. And that was, that again, that rocked me that I was no longer in control of this little boy's future. Did you relate that back to what happened in, in Bosnia? I don't think so, not, not immediately, but I mean, you, you can see the sort of the, the connection of the fact that my kids, I'm responsible for my kids. Uh, and I've often mm. said I would kill for my children. I would die for my children. I would do whatever had to be done to make sure that they were all right and that they were safe. And my wife as well. Mm. I can't, can't uh, forget my wife. Uh, and this is something in the army. Certainly I, I never had. I was a single man. Um, and my life was my responsibility and that was it. I can just imagine you've got to really almost wear this kind of mask or this shield. You're almost dehumanized, but now you've come back to civilian life and now you've developed these very normal human feelings, but you still don't want to accept that you have those feelings because in that moment in the in the living room, you run out of the room because you don't want your kids and you, your wife to see you upset. Yeah. What's stopping you from showing your vulnerability in front of your kids and your wife? We'll get back to the episode in a second. Before that, I just want to say, if you think this episode would be useful to a friend, send it along. You never know, it might just be the exact thing they're looking for today. And now back to the show. Um, it's just this inbuilt mechanism. The fact is that once upon a time to survive, you, you had to be strong and you had to show strength. If you showed any weakness, that was when you became vulnerable and you were attacked and you died or you lost the food you were going for or your family suffered. And I think it's still very much um, ingrained in the, the male psyche that we can't show that we're weak because somebody will take advantage of us. And I mean, I, I, I would guess... Even at school, even when you look at going to school, if you showed that you were vulnerable, there would always be somebody that would expose that vulnerability and exploit it. So you always wore a mask um, from the very early days. Yeah. Uh, and particularly for boys, I mean, boys yeah. more so, but boys and men were, were supposed to be tough and you fell down, you grazed your knees, you didn't cry, you just wiped it and you carried on. And so, and unfortunately for guys, and this is why as men, I mean, I now understand that it's healthy to talk about your emotions and it's healthy to share your emotions with people. Um, but you still see the youngsters, the way they're coming through schools and stuff like that, they're still having to put on this, this fake identity because otherwise they just get exploited, they just get ripped apart by their, their, their peers. Yeah. I'm curious, how is your son, what, what's your son's name again, sorry? Andrew. Andrew. How is Andrew different to you growing up as a man? And I'm guessing he's an adult now, a, a young a young adult. Andrew's, yeah, he's um, 19. He's just finished his first year at university. And it's like looking in the mirror when I see him because he's... Um, He's a big guy. I mean, I'm a big bloke and he's a big lad. Um, he's working in a nightclub at the moment. Is he on the doors? On the, on the bar. No, no, no. He's on the bar. But I've got to be honest, he likes hanging out with the doorman and stuff like that. And he does get involved in stuff that happens in a club. 
so he's obviously a, a tough guy after his old man. But then I keep trying to hammer on uh, to him the, the softer side that you've got to have. He said something a while back, which I was immensely proud of. It was during lockdown. So he was about 16 or 17, and, and he'd gone to a party. It was quite a small party. It was allowed. It was one of these things where I think things were starting to relax. He'd been having a bit of a relationship with a young lady, with a girl, and he'd gone to this party. And I'd gone to pick him up the next morning. And we're driving home, and he, he sort of looked at me and said, something happened last night, Dad, and I need to talk to you about it. So I was, you know, I, I, right, okay, mate, what, what happened? He said, well, um, the, my girlfriend, she, she was wanted to make love, but she was really drunk. So I decided not to. He said, I told her, no, we shouldn't. And we left it at that. And I, I just, this massive pride inside me, I just said, well done, mate, you did the absolute right thing. You absolutely did the right thing. Whether or not she wanted it, she was obviously, you know, you thought she was drunk. And, and, and I said, that, that you've got to do that. You've got to respect women. And sometimes even when they're, they're saying one thing, if you feel that it's the wrong thing to do, then I, I make you go with your feelings. Um, and that's something that, that's, that, that I'm really so pleased that he's got this. And I'm hoping he's getting it off me and his mum, you know, that he's got this respect for women and just just hopefully this respect for everybody. Have you ever talked to your, your son, Andrew, about the army and the things you experienced there and also that day in the village in Bosnia? I don't think I've ever talked to them about Bosnia. I've talked to them about the army um, and I've always kept saying to myself, I'm going to sit down with a GoPro and, and record some of the stories because, I mean, I've, I've lived a very wide and varied life. I mean, I've done everything from working the doors, being a cop, I've run pubs, I've been out in Bosnia, I've loads of things in between. There are always lots of stories. So, and my, my daughter will sit and she'll listen to the stories and she'll say, Oh, I love, love listening to your stories now. They're always really interesting. Mm. I think it's really good to to document this this kind of stuff. I'm when, whenever I'm a, a dad in future, I'd love to be able to document all of that because that's what you're leaving of you in the in, in the world when you yeah. pop your clogs. You know, you want something, you want things that your kids and and their kids and so on will will remember you by. Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, your story dies with you, doesn't it? So if you can't pass on some of your life, then uh, it's it's not being a, a life well lived i don't think it's really interesting that you've had a very varied life particularly on the professional side of things with your careers army soldier policeman bouncer what was the thinking behind those choosing those things i think so much of it is just circumstance the only reason i worked on the doors was because i was working in a shop um, and one of the guys I worked with was a bouncer, and he said, oh, we need some lads. You're a big, strong lad. Why don't you come and work on the doors? So I went along and gave it a try, and I enjoyed that. So that was quite interesting. With the army, I, I got involved with the army through the territorials originally because I had a, a, a sort of full-time job. I was working in a hotel. I had a good mechanical experience. I've done a lot of mechanical work in the back uh, in the past, and I just thought, oh, I wouldn't mind um, trying out and being a mechanic in the, in the territorials. And then the opportunity that came to um, sort of join the regulars, and so I took it. So um, 
it's nothing <laughs> for me. Very little of my life's been pre-planned. It always seems to have been fate that has, has guided me. And I, and I do say this an awful lot of people. I think fate, in my opinion, has a lot, a lot to play with your life. Sometimes crap stuff happens and you, you get so depressed and so fed up and you think, oh, you know, what's the point? And then a couple of weeks or a couple of months down the line, you're looking back and think, actually, I'm glad that happened because now I'm here and I'm doing something totally different. I mean, I'll, I'll give you a, a good example of, of, of the mask of masculinity. I, I think I'm involved with the beer festival in Corbridge, uh, Tyndale Beer Festival. Um, and I was actually there um, as a representative for a group I'm involved with called Andy's Man Club. And I'd seen a, a friend of mine, I, I saw his daughter, and I went across and had a quick chat with her, and she said, oh, did you hear about my dad? Now, I knew my dad hadn't been well, and I'd seen him about two or three months before that, and he, he'd been looking quite sort of ill, but nothing else. I said, no. I said, what happened? She said, oh, he passed away last week. And I was absolutely good. I mean, it just hit me like a, a bull from the blue. I wasn't expecting that at all, and I didn't think he'd been that ill. So I, I, I went out the tent, and I sat in my car, and I started going through all these feelings, all these emotions started going through my head. Um, but then it suddenly occurred to me that I was sat in the car when, in fact, in the tent was two lads that I'd been working with on Andy's Man Club who had been my rocks in so many occasions. So I went into the tent and I walked up these two guys and I just burst into tears and wrapped my arms around them. And the guys were just sort of like, what the hell's wrong, Jed, you know? And when I explained, we, we all just sat and, and had a brew and, and just talked about it. Now, once upon a time, that I would never have, I would have sat in the motor and I would have just hated my life and just felt really crap and, and depressed and that would have been the end of my day. But since being involved with Andy's Man Club, I've now got the courage to actually walk up to my mates and burst into tears and say, I've just had some shit news, guys. And know fine well that they're not going to rip the, the mickey out of us. They're not going to judge us. They're not going to go telling their mates who oh, Jed burst into tears. They're just going to put their arms around me, give me a hug and say, it's all right, man, we're here for you. And, and that's what I think guys need to do. We need to be able to wrap our arms around each other and have a hug and not go, okay, you know, or something like that, because it isn't far from it. It's a really nice story to talk about what it means to be a man in in 2022 it's almost like the addition of vulnerability will take you to the next level of being a man so to speak whereas back in the day you know my father my grandfather they were both coal miners that was similar kind of background to you to you in the sense of men don't show their emotions and their feelings and look at the difference i mean you know if you almost think about who jed the man is today if you had that situation in bosnia today would you have had the emotions flood out, flood out of you at seeing that crucifix. Oh yeah, without a doubt, without a doubt, I, we wouldn't have driven past. We would have stopped. I would have wanted to know what the hell was going on, why, why the graves weren't marked, why, why, why something wasn't being done about it. I, I would not have just rolled past and, and and put it away at all. So that was indicative of what men were supposed to be back in the nineties. Well, like, part of the the whole point of the army or, or the forces in general is that you've got to be able to defend defend yourself defend your realm defend defend your country 
And as a consequence, the training, you've, you've got to be strong, you've got to be tough, you've got to be able to compartmentalize things that you see because it's not good um, for morale. You look at the First World War and um, the stress and the strain that, that, that was happening to the soldiers on the front lines was so bad that the guys were cracking up and they were, they were going mad. And because the, the officers were, were scared that this was going to affect all the soldiers, they, they immediately called them cowards, took them away and executed them. And that was how they kept control. And I, I'm sure to this day, it wouldn't be the same, but, but they would certainly take measures to try and remove anybody who was struggling away from everybody else, not particularly for their own good, but for the, for the circumstance of the situation, because you need your hundred guys all looking at the front, all ready to pull the trigger, all ready to, to sort of like fight and kill and die. And you, you can't have somebody distracting everybody by having a breakdown behind. Unfortunately, that's just not, not the way of the armed forces. Not acceptable. And you could have been shunned by your your colleagues and yeah, other soldiers yeah. as well. I mean, yeah, we had a guy. I, I was um, on a on a on a particular training course um, with with guys from other units, and we had this lad. He was a Scotsman. He was a Glaswegian, and he was a tough kid. He was a tough guy. I mean, he was a real Glaswegian hard man, and you, you did not look at him the wrong way. Um, and then one day we were doing some training in the um, in the gas chamber, using my masks, using my regulators, with tear gas to make sure that you were doing your drills properly. This is your NBC drills. Um, and this guy got some got, got some gas in his gas mask. He, he got a lung full of tear gas, and he just burst into tears. He just became hysterical and actually ran out of the emergency exit screaming like a kid. And we were all just sort of stood laughing, just thinking, yeah, mate, you know, it's, it's, that's vulnerability that you're uh, going to regret showing because he did. When we came out afterwards, that was it. He got the mickey took out of him something rotten. Uh, in many respects, I, I, some people would say rightly so because he had this, he was such a tough bastard um, that, that, that it was nice to see that the guy had a weakness, a weak side. Mm. But it was something that you, you, you just fought not to show, no matter what the circumstances, whatever you were doing, you did not show that you were, um, you know, upset. I remember being in Hong Kong in 2016, where I'd started my business. I'd experienced a lot of depression and anxiety, and a lot of it was coming from my business failing. I remember bursting into tears one day, and I had a decision to make in that moment. I could have been completely embarrassed about it and wiped the tears away from my eyes and pretended everything was okay. Or I could just continue crying, let it all out, be vulnerable and own it. Thankfully, I did the latter. The times when I've not owned my tears, it's just suppressed it and made it worse. So that's why I've got so much respect for Jed that he was able to cry in front of other men and own it as a man. Jed has always been a tough man throughout his life. But what I find really revealing about this episode is how his definition of tough has changed throughout the years. In his army life, he was this tough man who was, I suppose, a traditionally tough man who was using his strength and not revealing any emotions and not being vulnerable. 
but nowadays he's willing to be vulnerable and let people know how he's feeling. And I think there's a lot of strength in that, which has almost created a new definition of what a tough man really is. Jed is guiding his son to be a very different man to the way he was 30, 40 years ago. What does toughness mean to you? Let us know what you think by going to our social media channels and commenting there. Before you go, I need to tell you about our man test. Because as men, we can struggle to forge strong relationships, often by being bad communicators. I've definitely been there. This podcast is about helping you better understand who you are as a man to become the best version of yourself. And the team and I have designed a simple quiz for you to discover more about your identity as a modern man. It takes less than three minutes to complete and it's going to help you establish better relationships and form stronger connections. Whether that's with your partner, friends or co-workers, the man quiz is going to help you become more trustworthy, reliable and dependable in all your relationships. Find the link to the quiz in the show notes now. You never know, you might just learn something new about yourself that you didn't know before.